Um, so you might have felt that Sarah's children's sermon was, a, was your full meal, and uh, it was pretty, pretty meaty, but in fact, that was only your appetizer. Um, and uh, for, the, for the feast to come, we have um, the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Stephanie Kramer back to our pulpit. Stephanie is a postulant to the diaconate in our diocese, which is a complex Anglican speak for, she's in training to be a deacon, y'all. Um, so well, thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Let me pray for the kids and for us. <clears throat> um, Lord, we thank you that you long for us to have wisdom, and you, we pray for these kids as they go off, um, that they would return with just a little bit more of it, um, that wisdom to them would not seem far off, um, that you would make it real and tangible to them in the moments of their play and their joy and their sorrow. We pray those things for us as well today. Amen. <clears throat> so... Several months ago, my five-year-old Bethany leaned over in a pew on a Sunday morning and whispered, I have a question. So she never, it's never that quiet. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes find questions from five-year-olds a little intimidating. They're more thought out than the simple questions of a three-year-old, but they're much more brutally honest and complex than the safe and logical questions of an adult. So my heart skips a beat when I hear a serious whisper of, I have a question. Is this going to be a question like, are mermaids real? Or is this going to be more on the level of, why aren't there angels I can see on earth, and who was the first person to go to heaven? All real things she has asked me. And so as it so happened, I lucked out, and she asked me a question that I was able to answer. She wanted to know what it tasted like to take communion, and if it always has to be small dollhouse crackers and wine. So even five-year-olds seek for wisdom. But along with wanting information about communion, my extroverted and fun-loving daughter has this innate fear of missing out. She wants to be sure she's never missing out on anything great. Now, five-year-olds, they want to know how the world works. They want to know what is good and what is worth going after. And for those who are humble and curious, that pursuit of wisdom and goodness continues all the way through life. And that's true now as it was in the days of Ecclesiastes. Now, we've gone through the first half of Ecclesiastes over these last several weeks, and in that first half, Solomon has surveyed everything under the sun to investigate if there is some lasting good that we can find in this world. He does a thorough search of the world and all that is in it and discovers that there is nothing truly good, nothing full of meaning and built to last, not like those toys from the 80s, right? <laughs> Chapter 6 ends with a question, and this is halfway through the book. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? It has been six chapters, and we are still searching for something eternal and good. So if you're starting to feel a little restless with this search, like each chapter is a new angsty teenage diary entry, then you're starting to get the point. Solomon, too, is restless. He's unable to find something that isn't vanity and striving after wind, but he's unwilling to stop until he does. And so now in chapter 7, we turn to a favorite topic of Solomon's, wisdom. Now, it's not the first time that wisdom comes up in Ecclesiastes. Back in chapter 1, Solomon explains that he sought to explore life under the sun with wisdom, and then he was glad to report that his wisdom and knowledge did grow. But chapter 1 ends with a sober assessment of wisdom. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And so, yes, it is a joyful thing to learn and understand and become wise, but that's not the whole story, is it? 
Sometimes knowledge is a weight on the shoulders and a shadow in your heart. Sometimes wisdom brings us into grief because the world is not always a happy place. Here in chapter 7, Solomon takes us on a journey to explore the sorrow, the limits, and the problems of human wisdom. So go ahead and turn to chapter 7 with me. You'll find it on page 556. Verse 1 starts out saying that a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, I think we can all see the sense in that. A good name is something that lasts. It's an indication of character. It can even outlive you. Ointment is a material good. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But then we get to the second half of verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, that's one of those mic drop sentences. It's jarring when you hear it. It's meant to shock you. It is certainly not that God prefers death to life or that death itself is better than life. God is the giver of life. And God the Father sent his own son Jesus into the world to raise up the dead to new life. So God loves life, and he hates death. He says death is the last enemy that will be defeated. Death is not, objectively, better than birth. So let's look at the next few verses to see what he might mean. Verse 2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now this idea of laying something to heart means to consider it, to ponder it, not just to think about it abstractly, but to let it enter in and take root. Verses 3 and 4 go on in the same vein and say, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon has spent so much of this book telling us about all the things that we think are meaningful and how they are actually vanity, and here finally he gives us something that he calls better, which implies that it at least has some meaning and value. And what is it? What is it that he calls better? It is sorrow and mourning and the day of death. After all that he has searched out under the sun, this is what he has to give us as something worth calling better. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about joy and feasting and celebration in life, and so we can know confidently that it is not an objective statement that death is better than life or mourning better than joy. And so what is Solomon trying to get at here? Two years ago, when my mother-in-law died quite tragically of cancer, my husband Jonathan flew up to spend a few last days with her and to plan her funeral. His best friend Nick picked him up at the airport, drove him two and a half hours to where his mom was, and then drove home. A few days later, he again drove six hours round trip to attend the funeral, all in the height of COVID. Now, Nick and Jonathan had been best men in each other's wedding. They had stood side by side in a house of feasting. But now they were side by side in the house of mourning. Now, what you need to know about Nick, though, is that he is an excellent partier. He can cook up a feast like nobody's business and spend all day doing it. He goes out of his way to find the best ingredients and make the most inconvenient but delicious recipes. He brews his own beer, he makes his own bread, and he invites as many over as will fit at his table, often bringing together people who would never otherwise sit, eat, and talk together. But the other thing that you need to know about Nick is that his father died when he was in high school. Now, Nick was intimately familiar with the house of mourning, and he knew that it was a good thing to enter that house again, side by side with his friend. <clears throat> but for Nick, and for us, the house of mourning taught him about the house of feasting. Not because death is good, 
but because it forces us to consider the end of all mankind, our own end, the ends of those we love. It reminds us that any good we encounter on this earth, the feasting, the parties, it is all temporary. It is all passing away. It is the house of mourning that gives meaning to our feasting. Because if we were never to die here on earth, then what would be the point of birthday parties and celebrations? What's the point of another birthday if you're going to live forever? These are things that we do to give structure to the time that we are given. They are mile markers on a journey that will one day end. They celebrate the time we are given and the good things that have happened. And they are good and right and important for us here on earth, here under the sun. But implicit in these feasts is the reality that we too will one day die. We celebrate life precisely because we have come to know just how fleeting it is. And it is wisdom to consider the implications of our mortality. Wisdom does not long for death, but it does acknowledge it honestly. Solomon is asking us to lay the reality of death to heart. All of us know theoretically that our days are numbered, but if that thought truly captivated your mind and your heart, how would it change the way that you live? How would it redirect the course of life? How should we live with the wisdom of our mortality? Those of you who have spent real time in the house of mourning, like Nick, have no doubt pondered these questions. But these first few verses are not there to leave us feeling depressed in the middle of summer, but to help us define wisdom as something that starts with acknowledging our own mortality. And it seems like maybe we've finally found something that Solomon thinks is worthwhile. Even though wisdom can lead to sorrow, the fact that he continues to talk about it so much tells, that this, tells us that this type of wisdom is worth having, even if, as we'll see, it has limits. So as we read on in chapter 7, we start to get to a series of wisdom sayings, and they have a similar feeling to Proverbs, with less of a linear thought pattern and more like a collection of thoughts. And reading them, it can feel like quite a shift from all this introductory talk about death but I think we'll find in the end that it all ties together. Like Proverbs, these next several verses are meant to provoke more thought about the topics mentioned. The main point here is not to learn everything about the wisdom pointers Solomon brings up, but to understand that human wisdom does have some practical value and meaning, even to us here under the sun. So let's dive in. Looking at verse 5, it tells us that it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And I think we can acknowledge that that makes some sense. Having a wise person correct us in our wrongdoing is better than being encouraged to go on being foolish by your friends. It's not always fun, but it is right. Verse 7 says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. When those with wisdom see oppression, when they see bribery and corruption and extortion winning, it drives them mad. I think we could even say to you Solomon's own words that it gives them sadness of face. A heart of wisdom becomes restless and mad in the face of oppression, whereas the heart of the oppressor only becomes more corrupt. Verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And this likely makes some intuitive sense as well. Just like in the running of a race, the only measure that really counts is at the finish line. While those with wisdom might feel frustrated here with life under the sun, while we may feel sorrow and are maddened by the wrongdoing that we see around us, hold on. Hold on a little longer. Have patience. Wisdom and justice do not always win here in life under the sun, but they will have the final say. Have patience, Solomon tells us. 
Verse 9 tells us not to let our spirit become quick to anger, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now this one's convicting to all of us. We can all recall times when our anger bubbled up quickly and we said something foolish, or a time when we let that anger lodge deep in our heart like a bullet in a piece of wood, and it takes real work and time to get it out. But to leave it in leads only to foolish words and actions. Verse 10 warns us about pining for the past. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For this is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, this is not just about longing for those simple good old days, as we'll find. Although, if we examine those good old days closely enough, I think we will find that they were no simpler and no better than the days we have today. As a family, we read Little House on the Prairie last year, and at times it was tempting to long for the simple days of sitting around a fire, telling stories, singing songs, and living off the land. But then, then we remember that there were no toilets or laundry and that they were often starving and sick and lonely and that even they too longed for the times before they left their comfortable home in the woods. We see this reminder too when we read in Exodus that the Israelites want to go back to Egypt, back into slavery because of their momentary hardship in the desert. Even in the wilderness where they were being provided for and they were headed for the promised land. And that story reminds us that we must never think that the days before we knew God are better than the days now, and certainly not better than the future that is promised. What a tragedy it would be if we spent our days longing for slavery while on the road to freedom. And yet we all do this. We all have times when we long for a past that never really existed, when we should be longing for a future that is promised and sure. Wisdom is longing forward, not backward. Verses 11 and 12 say something about wisdom itself. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Both wisdom and wealth have benefits under the sun. But Solomon has already talked in the previous chapter about how wealth is an unreliable possession. Both wisdom and wealth can be useful, but they cannot be ultimate. Comparing wisdom and money here is not intended to prove the protective power of wisdom, but rather its limitations and its unreliability. And so Solomon ends this section of wisdom phrases not on a note of praise, but with a note of caution and a reminder of the limits of our mortal wisdom. Verses 13 and 14 serve as a sort of conclusion or capstone to these verses about wisdom. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. If we were to chart a course of the Israelites wandering in the desert, it, wouldn't look, it would look very much like a literal crooked path. It was like two steps forward, one step back, a few to the side, a few to the other side, and then a few more forward. The ministry of Jesus looks not so different. First on this side of the Sea of Galilee, then across to the other side, then back, up some mountains, down in a valley, into a city, back to that other city. The wandering disciples, perhaps not unlike the Israelites, had to take things one day at a time, trusting that the crookedness they saw in the path before and the behind them was straight in the eyes of the Lord. And to map these paths on paper, we would find them to be inefficient, maybe even foolish according to human wisdom. And is that not how we feel about our own lives sometimes? Here we are just trying to get from point A to point B. 
from childhood to adulthood, from an internship to a stable job, from working to retirement. But our lives feel crooked and clumsy, and we wonder if it really has to be this difficult. Couldn't there be a few less obstacles? A few more days that feel like straight walking with a few less surprising turns. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, crooked here does not imply bad or wrong or unjust. Rather, it suggests the limited human perspective that is just unable to understand the mysterious ways of God. In the day of prosperity, yes, be joyful. But when times are bad, take heart. God has made the one as well as the other. There are no surprises for the Lord. The crooked path that leaves us feeling fearful about what new and scary things may pop out around the corner was forged by the same God who gave us our best days. And this is not to naively call bad things good or to delight in adversity or to say in a lighthearted and flippant manner that God's in control, it'll all work out in the end. It is, though, to say in days of hardship, where you can't see the road in front of you and turning back isn't an option and you aren't sure what to do next and you start to wonder if what is happening to you or in the world are just random acts of kindness or evil, it is to say in those moments that there is a God who has a path paved before you, as crooked as it may look. And it is to say that there is a God who doesn't just tell you to find your way, but who comes down and says, follow me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is to say that having wisdom means we say to one another with an intent gaze and tear-filled eyes and a quivering but clear voice, God is in control. It will all work out in the end. God is in control. It will all work out in the end. Stay on the crooked path with the Lord. It is better than the mirage of a straight path without him. It is wisdom to acknowledge our inability to know the future path or to beat death. And here Solomon tells us it is wisdom to have faith in a God who is not bound by those mortal limits. And Solomon is not just saying that our wisdom is limited, but he includes himself in that assessment. Let's look down at verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? And this is Solomon, the king known for wisdom, saying that true wisdom is beyond his grasp. And it's not that he has no wisdom. We've just seen in the verses above that he has great understanding of wisdom, and much of it is practical and good for us. But the wisdom of men, the wisdom to be found under the sun, is just not enough. It can't explain why sometimes the righteous perish and the wicked men live, as we see in verse 15. It cannot tell us what will happen in the future or how to protect ourselves from death. The wisdom of the world cannot make crooked paths straight. Wisdom may give strength, as in verse 19, but it cannot produce a righteous man who never sins, as we see in verse 20. He has given his mind to gaining true wisdom, but something stands in the way. Despite his efforts, it remains far off. So what is it? What is the problem Solomon finds that stands in the way of attaining true wisdom? And in short, his answer is very simple. What he has found is sin. 
Just as Solomon starts this chapter reminding us that death will come to all of us, here he ends it with a reminder of the ubiquity of sin. It is everywhere and in everyone. He says it in verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And he repeats it in verse 29, see this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The true and complete wisdom is unattainable because of the choices that humans have made. God created us for better things, for better days, but we have left his way and gone looking for sin. And we continue to find what we seek, each and every one of us. We have become experts at making crooked what God has made upright, and then we find his ways to be crooked rather than straight. And this is the pulse of the end of the chapter. True wisdom has deep roots in an awareness of how sinful we really are. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, not only for the death and injustice out there, but because of the death and injustice in here. And, we will, and until we can see those hearts clearly, our hearts clearly, we are not wise. So, is there any hope then, you might ask? There is certainly no hope in our rose-colored glasses, and there is no hope in wishful thinking or in just not paying attention to the reality of the world. There is no hope for a perfect life, perfect joy, perfect righteousness under the sun. There is no hope for life like that. Not unless, unlikely as it might be, you could actually find someone who conquered death. Not unless you could find someone who didn't discover that wisdom was far and beyond them. Someone who could know the complex thoughts and not feel them too far. Someone who would not just be angry and bitter with the world, but someone who could actually fix it. Someone who could change the world with justice and love, not unless you could find someone who actually had some sort of solution to human sin and death. No hope unless you could find someone like that. My guess is that Solomon could not have imagined the day when someone could write a letter to a group of Christians and say something like what we read in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ever since the fall of man, the world has been unsatisfactory. Human wisdom perceived this, and we long for something more. Human wisdom leads us to mourning, mourning for the world that could have been but is not now. But we were not made to be people who mourn eternally. The house of mourning is not our permanent address. If in Jesus, we have the promise that sin is defeated and death will be no more and true wisdom will reign supreme. In Jesus, we are welcomed into a house of feasting, not the distracted and foolish feasting of the world, but the wise feasting because there is nothing left to mourn. In this space, this church, even today, we can find the complex yet glorious mix of mourning and feasting. We mourn in this space the injustices of the world, the sickness of our family and friends, the death of loved ones, the difficulty of loneliness, the struggle of personal sin, and the very true fact that life is just not as it should be. These are real things to mourn, and Solomon would tell us that it is wisdom to mourn them well and together. And as we pray through the prayers of the people in just a few moments, lay these things to heart. This is a space for wise mourning. 
And then as we go on in our liturgy to confess our sin, this also is wisdom. It is staring reality in the face, acknowledging the ways that we have done wrong and neglected to do right. This is an acknowledgement of the death we deserve because of the ways we fail to love our neighbor and love God. We acknowledge that we too seek out many schemes. And so yes, this space is a house of mourning. But friends, it is also such a house of feasting. This is a table of feasting because it declares that God is creating a new world in which there is no death and there is no sin. A world in which everything is not just better, but truly good. It is not a world of vanity and meaningless striving, but of permanence and eternal truth. This is a table of feasting because it fills us with true wisdom. A table that proclaims week after week that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. A table that moves us from mourning and into feasting. It is wisdom to return to it again and again, week after week, year after year. If this is a feast that you have not yet tasted, then let the question of my five-year-old ring in your minds today. What does it taste like? Because this question, too, is wisdom. Amen.